Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to educating and empowering men to address erectile dysfunction, improve confidence, and enhance the satisfaction in their relationships. This podcast is brought to you by ErectionIQ.com. Learn more at ErectionIQ.com. Welcome to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. I am Mark Goldberg, Certified Sex Therapist. I am deeply passionate about working with men like you to help resolve their ED. Today we are joined by Dr. Amy Perlman. Dr. Perlman is a urologic surgeon focused on men's sexual health. She's an assistant professor and the Men's Health Program Director at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. She's passionate and dedicated to educating patients about sexuality, the physical body, and how to create pleasurable and meaningful sexual experiences. Dr. Perlman, we're really glad to have you. Guilty as charged. Good to be here. (laughs) So there are a number of treatment options available for erectile dysfunction. Today, we want to understand what they are, where each of them fit into a treatment process, and how patients can make informed decisions about the right treatment for them. But before we get started, Dr. Perlman, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your practice? As you mentioned, my name is Amy Perlman, and I had the opportunity to train all over the country. And during that time training as a urology resident, part of that training was understanding men's health and sexual health, but I really understood the importance in all the different treatment options, and most importantly, how to talk to patients and their partners during my one year of fellowship after my urology residency. I've currently been at the University of Iowa now for a little over three years, and my practice focuses on men's health, sexual health, and actually transgender care. And when we think about sexual health, oftentimes it comes underneath this pretty little bow or diagnosis of erectile dysfunction. But when you actually get into the detailed questions and actually sit down with a patient, you know, with or without their partner, it is so much more than erectile dysfunction and really has anything to do with talking about it and wanting it and having it and what happens after it and uh, and the enjoyment associated with any sexual you know activity. So the easy part of my job is restoring function. The more difficult part is the work that you do and everything else around actually having an orgasm and ejaculating. To get us started, I think before we do, let's say a full overview of treatment options, Can we discuss the current AUA guidelines, That's, I believe the American Urological Association, um, with regard to patient choice in the treatment process? And perhaps you could also share with us how the treatment process used to work and what things look like now with patient choice. The penile implant came out about like over 50 years ago, five zero. And so that was really the big option. And then when the oral medications or the pills came out over 20 years ago, the pills really revolutionized the way that we treat erectile dysfunction. And so then the treatment algorithm completely changed when it comes to treating ED. And we used to think that you got to go through this stepwise approach and you have to try everything before you ever make it to a penile implant. But actually the most recent iteration of the A guidelines, really it's up to the patient's choice in having this shared decision or informed decision-making process with the patient. So, you know, for some of my patients, let's say the pills work, but they don't want to take the pills or they're worried about the cost 
or they have side effects of the medications, really everything else is fair game. Or if someone can't take the medications because let's say they're on medications that will interact with the oral medications, then those guys might go to a penile implant. And then some guys want to go from step to step to step. Everyone's on their own timeline. So really our American Urological Association guidelines focuses on this shared decision-making with the patients and just notifying them, educating them on all treatment options. Yes, I want our listeners to really just understand that while we may talk about treatment in a progression as we're talking about the various options, that's not necessarily how things have to go. And currently, there is a collaborative patient choice element to the entire process. And the progression that we may talk about is not a one size fits all option for all patients. Now, to that end, I would love to get your opinion. Some of the people that I work with have expressed almost wanting more of a guidance. Uh, They feel comfortable when the doctor is kind of telling them what to do and feel a little bit uncomfortable Uh, having so many options and so many choices. I'm wondering what your opinion is about that occurrence um, and what might be some of the treatment guidelines um, when patients are feeling uncomfortable with that much choice. And I hear you, man. Like I, I understand that it's very open-ended and there's not much else in healthcare where we give patients like five options and say, what are you thinking? So often in healthcare, even though there are a lot of options with different medical concerns, we tell our patients or we say, we're going to put you on this medication. And then if they come back with side effects, then we might go to other medications. So it's rare that we give our patients choices. And especially with men where this might be the reason why they actually come and enter into the healthcare system. They just might not be used to meeting with a healthcare provider and talking through all these options. So that can be really overwhelming for patients. You know, I learned this when I was at a fancy seafood restaurant in Chicago about two years ago. And I went to this restaurant and the waiter came out with a tray and he presented this tray. Like I, like he had so much passion for presenting the food on the menu and you could see the lobster and you could see the steak and and you can see the, let's say a crab cake, right? So if you're going to order any of those options, when it came to your table, there was no surprise. If you ordered the lobster and had it delivered to your table and you were then, and it was a small or the steak was small, that's on you because you saw it and you ordered it. And so you kind of knew what you were getting yourself into. And that's how I've adopted all these therapies for ED in my own medical practices. I have all these demo products behind me and I have another set in my clinic. So when I go into the office, I'm literally carrying a whole armful of stuff and I drop it on the table. And when we go through these options, I'm showing them exactly what we're talking about. So there are no surprises for some of these therapies. They require a prescription. And so they can find out at the pharmacy how much it might cost. And for others, they might not need a prescription. So they might be ordering them online. And the last thing I want to do is recommend and, and describe in detail what these therapies are, have my patients order them or fill them at the pharmacy, see the needle that I'm asking them to inject their penis with at home after they've spent the money and say, that's not for me. So when I'm talking through all these options, I'm showing them this is what a vacuum pump looks like. Mm -hmm. This is one of many models here, other recommendations. This is the exact needle that you're going to put in your 
your penis if you decide to go through with injections. And the needle is not to scare anyone. It's to show them this is the needle. It's mm-hmm. not, there's, it's not fancy. This is a needle. This is what it looks like. What are you thinking? And I look at the expression on their eyes and I can get a sense in that moment if Bill is thinking, oh, I could try it or no, I'm not interested. And so based on how they respond is how I direct them through these options. Yes. What what I'm really hearing is that it's not just patient choice where you bring them the platter and just say, oh, you pick and, and best of luck to you. This really is about patient education with that patient choice and really helping the patient to make an informed decision with what makes the most sense for them, not just for their life circumstances, but also with where their comfort lies with the treatment. And I really, really appreciate that. So Dr. Perlman, can we talk about this progression though? And let me, I guess, kind of just, I'll give you a little, a little mini case study. I know there's so many factors I couldn't possibly. I'm going to take a little swig of my Chardonnay as you're talking. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Let's say a gentleman, we'll, we'll name him Mike, is a 42-year-old male, married for the past 13 years, and he comes to you, he's experiencing trouble gaining an erection when uh, trying to engage in sexual activity with his partner. He's got no underlying medical conditions. Maybe kind of give us an overview of, of where this process starts and how it progresses forward based on the efficacy of treatment. So if Mike is coming in and he's 42, he's like a lot of men his age, over 50%, 50% of men over the age of 40, 40 will notice a drop in erectile function. So I would tell Mike, thank you for coming in today. You're ahead of so many people because a lot of men your age and younger and older have the same concerns you're coming in with, but they never have the courage to come in to seek help about it. So congratulations for coming in today. And I say that in a very genuine way. That is authentic. That's not, you know, belittling Mm -hmm. by any means. And then I go through how the basics of erections work and and go back to, you need good blood flow in the penis. You need the blood to stay in the penis to maintain the erection. And for a variety of reasons, probably a couple that we can name or many that we can name and a variety of that we don't understand are playing a role are going to affect those, that ability for the blood to come in and stay into the body. And then I'll ask some additional questions that could be related to hormone issues because even though putting someone on testosterone therapy may not get someone rock hard erections, hormones are really important. And that's something I've definitely have become to appreciate over the last three years is my hormones and my main hormone is estrogen, but I also have testosterone in my body. And and both of those hormones are important in my sex life, but also in so many other factors of how I function on a daily basis. And it's the same thing for men. So even though he might not come in with any medical problems, the next question is, do you see a healthcare provider on a regular basis? You know, and I oftentimes find with guys who come in and they don't look super healthy. Um, and I ask them, do they have any medical problems? And they say, no, then I'm asking, what was the last time you saw a healthcare provider? Because if that person has never seen a healthcare provider or hasn't seen them in five or 10 years, just because they don't have diagnoses doesn't mean that they don't have other medical problems like diabetes and hypertension or, or heart disease, which are the number one and number two cause of erectile dysfunction. So I'm going to get into a little bit more of the details of has he had his lipids checked and has he been tested for diabetes? And, um, you know, what is his typical blood pressure run at? And then I'll look at the monitor and see what his blood pressure is running today with the caveat that sometimes when they show up in my office, those blood pressures are going to be a little bit higher than what they run at normal. And, but I'll ask some of those questions that are commonly related to low testosterone. So I'll ask about, do you feel tired during the day? Like if you could take a nap when you get home from work, would you take a nap? 
Do you feel like, how's your sex drive? Do you feel like, you know, are you working out? And when you work out, do you feel like you're able to maintain muscle mass or do you have issues getting muscle mass? Any issues losing weight? Uh, any decreased mood or concerns for uh, just changes in, you know, quality of life. And some, a lot of those symptoms are very vague and they can be due to a variety of reasons, but actually our most recent iteration of our AUA guidelines for ED recommend checking testosterone. So it's something that for most of these guys, especially this 42 year old guy, you know, and if he tells me he feels tired or has somewhat low libido, I'm definitely going to check his testosterone level. So that would be something that I'm thinking about. And then if he hasn't seen a primary care uh, provider recently, as part of those initial lab work of getting the testosterone, I might check basic labs. What's his kidney function? What is what do his electrolytes look like? And what does his complete med, uh, complete blood count look like in terms of looking at hemoglobin and hematocrit? Yeah, so I mean, you make a good point that that I think it's becoming more and more common that erectile uh, dysfunction or some other sexual dysfunction uh, can be the first point of contact, the first reason that a a uh, person seeks medical treatment um, after not having been seen by a primary care physician or another physician in a number of years. So let's assume that that our patient, Mike, has gone through uh, you know, the battery of tests and whatnot, and you don't really discover anything underlying. There's no, no real medical conditions. What, and, and his testosterone levels are, are within the normal range. What then would be the recommendation or the next step? How does treatment for erectile dysfunction proceed from there? I would also look at his medications. And so presuming that he's not on any medications, mm -hmm. I, um, I would ask about his relationship and, you know, I would ask uh, some more detailed questions about his sexual health. But honestly, if Mike tells me, you know, my erections aren't as good as what they were before, that's enough for me to offer him treatment. And what I really like to do in this initial visit or the second visit is give Mike a, an entire roadmap of what that treatment process looks like. A lot of guys come in and they say, I've tried Viagra. It doesn't work. Is there any hope for me? And I'm like, you've barely hit the iceberg. You probably didn't even take Viagra the right way because I'm sure that whoever prescribed it, I mean, a lot of people are not told how to take their medications. So that is a big reason for treatment failure is because they might take it right after eating a fatty meal. And so that's going to reduce the absorption of that medication. So I like to give a roadmap of saying, okay, we usually start with the oral medications. And if these don't work, or if this one oral medication doesn't work, then we can try this one. And I talk about the differences and similarities between those medications, because when it comes to pills, there are four FDA approved medications to treat ED. I'm also talking about rehabilitation, like with vacuum pumps for guys who are concerned about loss of length and girth. And then I might talk about tension bands and vibrators and penile injections and medication you can put in the urethra and penile implant surgery. And some guys want to know more about the regenerative therapies. And, and those are considered still investigational or experimental, but it still can be part of that discussion when it comes to shockwave therapy, platelet-rich plasma or stem cell therapy. So you can imagine these discussions can be quite lengthy. And, and these are just talking about the medical options. So if they bring up concerns about their relationship or any stress in their lives that might be contributing, then we're also going to talk about maybe sensate therapy and going to a counselor or a sex you know, therapist or a couple's counselor. And so, yeah, the conversations, honestly, if you were to have a truly informed conversation going through all the options, pluses and minuses, it would take 
probably two hours. Mm -hmm. And that's just going through all the options, not even getting any information from the patient. And that's where I think podcasts like this are so helpful because I've realized in the last three years, I don't have to tell my patients everything they'd ever need to know in a single visit. My job now is to give them the highlights, to give them the main pluses and minuses and then to give them information that they can go home with and really read through and digest the information at home. And people learn differently. So that's what I'm trying to understand in the office is how does this person learn? Is it by listening? Is it by watching a video several times? Is it by reading a packet? So I'm providing that person with all this information and not putting the pressure on them that they have to decide right now if they want Viagra or Cialis. In fact, if they want both, I'll give them both, you know, but that, that initial visit is, is saying to them, we have so many tools in our toolbox. We can help you. You know, it just depends at the end of the day, what you want to do and how aggressive you want to be when it comes to treatment. Yeah. So connecting back into that patient choice is the patient really needs to be informed and educated. And, and like you're pointing out, it, it could be, you know, multiple hours of, of, really taking in the right information and and coming to uh, a sound informed decision for what's best but let's let's kind of run through now with Mike so we're going to start him on sounds like a PDE5 inhibitor and you mentioned that there's four different options can you give us an overview of what those options are what some of the differences are uh, preferences that um, a urologist might lean towards at that first medication um, if it's Viagra or Cialis or one of the other ones, how does that work? I'd be delighted. So the, you know, for most patients, I'm going to start with using oral medication. The really, the main patient that I can't use medications like this on are going to be patients who take nitroglycerin, whether it's a daily medication that they take for some blood, for some heart disease, or if they occasionally get chest pain and have to put a nitroglycerin underneath their tongue. A lot of my patients actually have nitroglycerin written on their medication list, but if they hadn't take they if they haven't had to take it in a while and they're currently doing well, or let's say they had to take it five years ago, but then they had coronary artery stents placed, I'm not as worried about those guys. So if there's any concern, I'll have them reach out to their cardiologist for clearance. But just because they have it on their list doesn't necessarily mean they can't take these medications if it's not a medication they actually take. As I mentioned, there are four FDA approved medications to treat erectile dysfunction, and I'll list the brand names. Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, and Stendra. Stendra is the newer medication on the block. And so with newer medications come a higher cost. And there's no real benefit in terms of how this medication works in the body. So if someone were to say to me, I want to be on this medication, I would have no problem prescribing it. But because of the cost reasons, I actually don't prescribe it very often. And then there's Levitra. Levitra works very similarly to Viagra, but is more expensive. And so for that reason, along with Stendra, Levitra and Stendra really are not commonly prescribed in my clinic. And then I'm really going in between Viagra and Cialis. And there are several main differences between these two medications. Viagra is a short-acting medication. Cialis is a long-acting medication, meaning Viagra can work in your body for four to six hours, Cialis might work for a day or a day and a half. Some people might call Cialis the weekend pill where they take it on a Friday night and it might still be in their body working on a Saturday night. 
Now, all these medications, how they work is they work by increasing the amount of time that nitric oxide sticks around in the penile tissue. And that goes back to the basic physiology of how someone gets and maintains an erection. It's nitric oxide gets released from nerve terminals and, and, and cells that allows more blood flow into the penis. So the more nitric oxide you can have hanging around in the penis, you get increased blood flow, more blood flow, better erections, erections last longer. So it doesn't mean that someone is going to have an erection that lasts four to six hours or 36 hours. It just means that's how long the medication is working in the body for. So with, with all these medications, you have to be stimulated and that stimulation can look a variety of different ways, thinking certain things, touching, having your partner touch you, whatever it is. So if you go to the grocery store and you just took a Cialis that morning, will you get an erection? Well, I guess it depends on if you find anything sexy in the grocery store. Okay. So some guys find that if they take a Cialis, maybe it's their, their genitals are rubbing against their jeans in the grocery store, wherever they're at, and that might stimulate them and actually be problematic. So, so guys should be aware of that. I think it brings some guys back to high school or, or middle school when they start getting erections at inappropriate times. So sure that can happen with these medications, depending on certain stimulation, but you do need, need to be stimulated. I have guys who come in to say, well, I took a pill and it didn't work. And I ask them, well, were you thinking certain thoughts? Were you ready to have sexual activity? And they say, no, I just took the medication. Well, it's not going to work in that case. And then a few other key points to know here, Viagra, you should really take on an empty stomach. Same thing with Levitra. So especially you don't want to take it after a fatty meal. So don't eat. Well, in general, eating a fatty meal isn't going to be good for erections, but if you're going to do it, you don't want to take one of these medications right afterwards because it will affect the absorption. With Cialis, it doesn't matter. And that would be another advantage of Cialis. Now, Viagra doesn't take quite as long to take effect. So we're talking 45 minutes to an hour. If you took it 15 minutes ago and are stimulating yourself and expecting an erection, that's not quite enough time for it to take effect. Cialis takes a little bit longer. I usually tell my patients to wait at least two hours before sexual activity. So there is some timing involved with both of these medications. Now, I used to prescribe a lot of Viagra. The pharmacist at my clinic used to always know when Dr. Perlman was in clinic because all the patients would come to get their Viagra from the pharmacy. But there are actually medications, and that, used to, that was because Cialis was too expensive. So I wanted to use Cialis for the reasons it lasts longer, and it doesn't matter how you take it with food. I prefer to use Cialis, but it was very cost prohibitive. Some guys would say, oh my God, it was $30 a pill. It was $60 a pill. I couldn't afford it. And then they're thinking in their head, should I take it tonight? Am I going to get lucky? Oh my God, that's $30. Is it worth it? And that was just too much, right? Um, but actually with medication assistance programs like GoodRx, G-O-O-D-R-X.com, these are medication assistance programs that can be used in combination with a prescription from a healthcare provider that actually allow you to get both Viagra and Cialis for very cheap, which honestly makes my job way more enjoyable. I don't like prescribing medications if it costs a lot of money. And for example, for like, if you take a low dose of Cialis, 90 pills, it's like $21 for 90 pills of low dose Cialis. And so it's rare that someone says that doesn't work for me. And, and for that reason, I actually prescribe Cialis a lot more. There are a couple scenarios where I might prescribe Viagra over Cialis. If someone has kidney failure or has chronic kidney disease, Cialis does need to be renally dosed. So some folks, depending on their kidney function, 
you might have to lower the dose or they might not be a candidate for Cialis. And in those guys, I'll put them on Viagra. Other guys, if they have issues, like let's say with uh, regulating their blood pressure, for example, let's say they have a neurologic disease and I want to see how they tolerate these medications, I'll put them on the shorter acting medication Viagra to see how well they tolerate it before considering a longer acting medication. It sounds like, again, the first line treatment in most instances is going to be a PD-5 inhibitor. There's you know, different advantages and disadvantages to a Cialis versus a Viagra. Now, let's say Mike, 42 years old, got on his PD-5 inhibitor and uh, it's working great. We'll even say he came to see somebody like myself and did some you know, tuning up on his relationship and things are really going well in that department. And uh, Mike comes back to see you, let's give him seven years, comes back to see you seven years later. And he says, Dr. Perlman, things have been going really well, but I noticed over the last you know, three months or so, uh, the medication just isn't quite doing what it used to do. Now, assuming he's already at max dosage, let's jump ahead with that. He's at max dosage at this point. What would be uh, some of the um, options that, that Mike would have at that point? I would go back to updating, has anything else changed in his life over the last seven years? So we're going back to the basics of any medical problems, any surgeries, any new medications, and then going back to all those hormone questions we discussed, because I'm definitely going to recheck his testosterone. What we know when it comes to hormone therapy is if someone used to respond to the oral medications like Viagra and no longer respond and they have low testosterone, a lot of those guys will respond better to Viagra or the oral medications once you actually treat their low testosterone. So that would be something that I wouldn't want to miss. And then, you know, let's say, and he's taking it appropriately, everything's working fine, relationship is fine. And by the way, I do want to make the point that even though we're talking about the medical options, if I could get all my patients or all men or all people to see someone like you, we would all be winning, right? And even if it just learn, learning how to communicate these concerns with someone's partner or to better understand their body, I mean, that's where it's at. So if, but, uh, so that's key. So we would definitely talk about sex therapy. I wish all my patients would go, you know, certainly there are access issues and that's why these podcasts are nice, but that definitely plays a role there. Okay. So he's on max dose Viagra. I would ask him, let's say his testosterone is fine. Does he want to try any of the other oral medications? There's no evidence to say that one necessarily works better than another. So I have some patients that say, well, yeah, let me try Cialis or let me try Levitra. Fine. I have no problem with that. I do have some patients that actually combine those medications. They might take a Cialis every day. So it's always in their system. And then on demand prior to sexual activity, maybe they need something additional to that. They could take a Viagra because it doesn't take as long to take effect. So I would say, do you want to try more oral medications or do you want to move on to other options? Then, you know, when it comes to kind of topping off the erection, there are other therapies like vacuum erection devices. And that's this. And this is exactly what I would show in my clinic is I would show the guys that this, it's an external device. This one's battery powered. And I would say, look, if you're able to get a decent erection, but you want to top it off, or if you're worried that you've lost length or girth, get a vacuum pump and you would put it like this. This one's battery powered. So you would push this for a couple seconds, relax, let blood come in and then do it again. Mm -hmm. And it might take about two minutes to get the full erection. So Dr. Palmer, for, for our listeners who might not be viewing this. Can you describe some of the parts of this device in words? Yes. Great question. So there's a, there's a canister 
And then um, there, the manual ones have like a lever where you actually, you know, push the lever. And then there are battery powered ones where you just push a button and it physically creates a suction to draw blood into the penis. Okay. And so that can help uh, just increase blood flow to the penis and help stretch the penis. So when I talk about, you know, those guys who are worried about any loss of length or girth, this can be used as a rehabilitation tool just to stretch the penis, to give the penis exercise. You know, people talk about just in general, if you don't use it, you lose it. And that's true for the penis. So when I tell my guys, look, you need to get daily erections. If you're you know, worried about the health of your penile tissue, I'm not saying you can use it whenever you want with whomever you want, but I'm just saying with any part of the body, if you don't exercise it, the tissue literally shrinks and atrophies and doesn't stretch as well as it used to. It's the same thing with a bicep or a tricep. So these tools can be really helpful for penile rehabilitation to just increase stretch of the tissue. Now, let's say this guy, Mike, can get a decent erection, but has issues maintaining the erection. Well, maybe it's because the veins that drain the penis, maybe they're emptying or opening too soon, and he needs help keeping the blood in the penis. That's where a tension band can be really helpful. And these are available, the vacuum pump and the tension bands, you don't need a prescription for them. You can get them at stores, you can get them online. And the name of the game here is try different ones. It's so rare that the first one that you try is gonna be the best one. You want them to be comfortable, but they need to be tight enough to actually keep blood in. They're made out of a variety of different materials and tensions and sizes. So you gotta try one, uh, try many to see what works. If you're using a vacuum pump and you want, and you're using it before sexual activity, then you're going to have to keep the blood in. And so that's where you would use a tension band in combination with a vacuum pump. Now, there are a variety of ways that you can also make tension bands a little bit more enjoyable for couples. And that would be to get one that's maybe a little bit more fun. This one right here vibrates. That's kind of fun. I don't know if you can see it vibrating at all. But, you know, these can be couples toys. So this can feel good for both the male partner. And if we're talking about a heterosexual relationship, it can also feel good for the female partner. And I think using tools that can be satisfactory or pleasurable for both people is a way to bring this into the conversation. So let's say you're just using, you know, a typical tension band that person, that guy might be nervous about bringing it up, saying like, oh, I have issues maintaining the erection. Let me get a tension band. But some ways that he might introduce this concept into the sexual activity or into the bedroom is by saying, hey, I got this cock ring the other day. It vibrates. You know, I think we're going to be able to enjoy this for a longer period of time. I think it's going to feel good for you if it vibrates, you know, against your genital tissue or your clitoris or your penis or whatever it is. And so if you put it on, I want to improve your pleasure, then maybe that that guy is getting something out of it too. Definitely yes. ways to be creative bringing this up. <laughs> yes. So, so both of these devices would be to promote blood flow and then promote retention of blood flow into the penis, correct? Yeah. This, the, the vacuum pump is going to bring blood into the penis. The tension bands are to keep blood in the penis. Both of these devices though require some exertion, some effort prior to sexual activity. Beyond incorporating the band with the vibrator, I imagine that this takes some planning ahead of time before sexual activity. Is that correct? That is correct. And that's why when it comes to the vacuum pump, even though I actually recommend that a lot of my male patients get a vacuum pump, more so the recommendation 
is to use it on a daily basis for rehabilitation, but not necessarily before sexual activity, because what you alluded to is that they can be quite cumbersome. So getting a vacuum pump, taking it out, putting it on the penis, getting the tension band, there's a lot involved. So that's definitely going to take away from the spontaneity of a sexual encounter, which is definitely something that we're talking about during that office visit. Like people need to know that. I'm not going to sugarcoat the vacuum pump to say, oh my God, this is amazing. You're going to love it. You're part Partner's going to love it. You're going to love that it takes, a, you know, 10 extra minutes to get an erection. You're going to love putting these pieces together. Like nobody loves it, but for some people it works. Yes. Okay, great. So Mike thinks it's a great idea and says, Dr. Oh, Perlman. I like I, Mike. I'm yes. feeling Mike vibe. <laughs> right. Mike, Mike, Mike is very open to treatments. He says, I am going to, I'm going to try that. He, you know, orders the right device for him online. He tries out a couple of them, but he shows up back in your office three months later and says, uh, you know, my partner just, she can't stand the appearance of this device. It makes her feel uncomfortable. She does not want me using a band. She's uncomfortable with that. And she really just doesn't like this whole vacuum concept. She says she doesn't want to see what's going on. She doesn't want to have anything in her face. So where where does Mike go from here? Well, the good news is that we still have a lot of other options here. So another option would be penile injection therapy or medication that the gentleman would put in his urethra, that tube that he urinates out of. Now that medication that we would put in the urethra, I actually don't commonly prescribe that medication. It's called Alprostadil or Muse. And the reason is because it can cause a pain in the penis. It actually tends to be quite expensive. So if the price were better comparable to some of these other options, I, I might recommend it more in my patients, but just the patients that I work with, you know, a lot of people are concerned about costs. And so that plays a role, you know, a lot in, in these educational encounters I have with patients, but you can still inject that medication that you would put in the urethra. You can inject it into the penis with a needle. And that's where I would pull up the actual needle and, and the vial that we would prescribe for the patient. And there are so many different medications that you can inject into the penis in terms of combinations. You can inject a single agent. You can combine it, which is called bimix. You can put three medications together called trimix. You can do quadmix, super quadmix. And so there's no right answer when it comes to what you're actually going to put in there. I have my standard regimen that works for a lot of people. And then we start at a low dose and we slowly work our way up. So the exact needle, it's an insulin syringe with an insulin needle. So it's a very tiny needle. Again, if someone doesn't want to do penile injections because they look at this needle and they say, that's not for me, it doesn't make him a wuss. You know, it's, I would say it's a normal reaction to say, I don't really want to inject my penis with a needle before sexual activity. If anyone says that to me, I would say you're normal. That's okay. <laughs> That's a normal response. Um, I think some guys are surprised at how well they tolerate it. And I think some guys are surprised at how poorly they tolerate it. But if anyone's like, oh, maybe I'll try it. Then I recommend that they try it and then they know, and they're not guessing. So with this medication for the typical formulation that I, that I prescribe, it's a very small volume. So this entire syringe here is 100 units or one CC or one milliliter, all the same. And so I, you know, the 0.2 is the typical starting dose for the formulation that I use. So it's a very small volume here. And then what they would do is the penis is exactly like a sponge. So they would hub the needle into the penis and they would slowly inject the medication. 
and they would take the needle out, discard this in a sharps container and hold pressure. And the location that they would inject into is really towards the base of the penis, not at the top part here, because that's where nerves and vessels are, not at the bottom, because that's where the urethra is, but really on the side of the, of the penis, about towards the base of the penis. And because the erectile tissue, there are two cylinders of erectile tissue in the penis, and they're actually connected in the middle by a thin piece of tissue or a thin septum, you only have to inject one side and that medication actually acts on both sides. It's really important with this medication though, or these, the penile injections to start at a very low dose and to slowly work your way up. So the starting dose is probably not going to be the dose that that person needs. And the reason you have to start low and slowly titrate up is because this medication can, and sometimes does cause that painful prolonged erection, which, you know, if I tell my patients, oh, you could have a four hour erection, you know, a lot of guys, if they haven't had this before, it's like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. And it's like, no, it is called a priapism. Terrible, you know, it necessitates like an ER visit. Mm -hmm. So we don't, we don't want our patients having to go to the ER. And with the oral medications, I'll often start at a high dose, but with the penile injections, start at a low dose and slowly work your way up. And so it takes some titration, but the nice thing is it doesn't take as long to take effect. So compared to the oral medications, it could take 45 minutes up to two hours. The injectable medication takes 10 minutes, 15 minutes. So that allows for more spontaneity as well. So a way to do that, and, and some of these can be non-refrigerated, some needs to be frozen and defrosted. So there's, again, some timing involved. Nothing's for free here. Nothing's mm -hmm. perfect. But the guy might say, you know, hey, I'm going to grab some medication or, hey, I'm going to grab a glass of wine. Do you want anything? Goes, does the injection, comes back, you know, five minutes later. Now, one of the advantages, if I understand correctly, is that the injections also do not require specific thoughts or stimulation. In other words, they should work to facilitate that erection. Even if a man is feeling really anxious, if his thoughts are not necessarily there, he's not particularly aroused. Is that correct? That's correct. So it, it doesn't work via the nitric oxide pathway. And so like I'll use these medications, if I'm doing a surgery on someone in the operating room and they're asleep and I want to induce an erection, then I'll use these penile injection medications to induce an erection. But even with these medications, if someone is really stressed out and anxious for whatever reason, even if it's completely unrelated to the sexual experience, that body is literally, that the brain is literally sending signals to the penis to close off those vessels. So we're trying to increase blood flow and that stress is literally constricting the blood vessels. So even anxious guys can overcome some of these medications. Now the penile injection therapy is gonna be the most efficacious means, medical therapy, the highest rates of success in terms of getting erections out of all the medications we can use. Guys who, let's say, have had pelvic surgery, have had, let's say, their prostate removed and had nerve injury, or let's say, have diabetes for a long period of time, those guys are going to require more invasive therapy like penile injections. And while the pills work in a lot of people, they don't work in everyone, especially those with more medical problems. Mike buys the, <laughs> he goes with the Trimix and... You know, it's effective again for a, for a number of years. And I guess let's make this interesting. At 66, Mike has a very healthy sex life. His relationship is going really well. And um, unfortunately, he is diagnosed with prostate cancer. And he has to undergo a uh, prostate surgery. And um, that causes some lasting damage that now even with the injections, he's not quite able to 
get an erection. Now he's gone through the processes of rehabilitation and medically it's determined that there's not much that can be done with uh, rehabilitation and with injection therapy at this point. So what is Mike's option now? You bring up some really great points because one of the biggest predictors of post-prostatectomy prostate surgery erectile function is pre-prostatectomy erectile function. So if Mike came in and was already requiring penile injection therapy, then I'm thinking it's probably not going to do the trick after he's had this prostate surgery. Now, it can take up to two years for the nerves that sit on the prostate to recover. So let's say we're three or six months out from the surgery, his nerves might still be recovering if they were spared. Maybe they were put on stretch or just damaged. So it might be that he responds later on. It just, his nerves need to heal. So that's one thing to consider is how far out he is from his prostate surgery. And as you mentioned, I would be very aggressive with Mike when it comes to penile rehabilitation, because so many guys, what they say is I've lost length, I've lost girth. And sometimes that's immediately right after they have their prostate surgery, they wake up with the catheter and they're like, where did everything go? I hate having those conversations in my office. I bet you hear some of those conversations too. It's all, it's for many guys, it's part of their masculinity. So even if I'm able to restore function, if he looks down and says, what the heck happened? I, Dr. Perlin, I used to be six inches and now I'm barely three. A lot of guys feel less of a man or less like themselves because they've lost so much length. So early rehabilitation with a vacuum pump and even with a traction device, and this is a really good device, the Restorix device, it was developed out of the Mayo Clinic. This has been used with penile curvature, Peyronie's disease to stretch the tissue. But more and more research now is coming out with using a device like this after prostatectomy Hmm. to help stretch the tissue as well. So if any of these guys are worried about loss of length or girth, I'm very aggressive. And I put them on this rehab protocol of traction and vacuum pumps and having them do the injections to encourage as much stretch of the tissue as possible. But then let's say, you know, he's doing that and he wants actually, you know, definitive therapy to get spontaneous erections. Then we're really going to be talking about penile implant surgery. And because we have penile implant surgery as an option, that's why I can tell most guys that there are very few men in whom I can't restore function. And that has nothing to do with me. I didn't come up with these therapies. So if if patients say they don't like them, I don't take any personal offense. But, you know, it's the millions and billions of dollars that industry pharmaceuticals and medical devices have spent towards these therapies to come up with really good ones. And the penile implant is pretty much just replacing the hydraulics of the penis. And you have to go back to the basic anatomy of the penis. And you have those two erectile bodies that fill with blood when one gets an erection. So I'm basically just putting in tissue liners, one cylinder into each erectile body to fill that space. I don't remove any erectile tissue. The erectile tissue is this spongy tissue. I can just push it to the side um, with some tools and I don't have to remove anything. And I measure the body. So I measure whatever length is actually in the penile shaft with a measuring device. And then actually part of the erectile tissue dives deep behind the scrotum into this area that sits in between the scrotum and the rectum. And I measure that tissue as well. And so whatever size that person measures is the size implant I put in. There's also a pump that sits in the testicle, sorry, that sits in the scrotum in between the testicles. I don't remove the testicles to put this in. There's plenty of room in the scrotum to accommodate this device. 
And there's a storage reservoir, which I don't have here, but it's basically a balloon that stores all the salty water or normal saline. And it's a closed system. And that, that balloon sits in the pelvis. So when a guy wants to get an erection, and this, this guy has an implant in, and, and I've examined guys before with implants in, and I do that. This is one of the most common operations that I do. And if a guy didn't tell me that he had an implant in, and he were just standing up and I wasn't feeling around in his scrotum, which might be awkward to watch, but if I wasn't feeling around, I would have no idea that he had an implant in. They're very natural. And if he were showering in a locker room, nobody would know that he had, that Mike had an implant in. What he would do is he would push this pump that's in the scrotum and he's physically moving fluid from this storage reservoir through the pump and into the cylinders and to create a rigid erection on demand. And he can maintain that erection for however long he wants. When he wants to get the erection to go away, there's a small button that sits right on top of that, that other button that inflates the device. He would push that and then squeeze the fluid out of the cylinders like this. And then all the fluid moves out of the cylinders through the pump and back into that storage reservoir. So it's a closed system, moving salty water from one area of the body to another. And because all this fluid, that storage reservoir is inside the body, it's body temperature. So the partner can't tell the difference between body temperature, blood and body temperature, salty water. And I would say the important things to recognize when it comes to this surgery is one, you can maintain the erection for however long you want. So that's where we really have to understand if that person is in a relationship and it doesn't, to get an implant, you don't have to be in a relationship by any means, but understanding the partner, what their needs are, and do they have any pain with sexual activity? If that partner has a female partner and they've gone through menopause and they have dry vulvar tissue, then for, if I put an implant in someone, that's going to make it really uncomfortable during sexual activity. So we want to make sure we're optimizing both partners, sexual health and, and tissue quality. And then the other factor is, yeah, I can put this implant in, but it's not going to get Mike back to what he was before when it comes to length and girth. So the only way to prevent Mike looking down and saying, that's it. You shorten my penis with an implant is to prevent the loss of length and girth from ever happening. And that's why it's important that Mike comes in at 42 and at 49 and at 66 and ideally even at sooner intervals, because we want to make sure during that entire process that he's exercising his tissue and getting regular erections, however that looks with whatever therapy we're talking about. So is the penile health throughout and the erection health throughout the aging process and throughout the, it's not just about when something isn't working, but it's really about maintenance. Exactly. Maintenance, prevention, whatever is good for the heart is good for the penis. So eating healthy is good and exercising is good. Blood flow and nerves, we got to optimize those. And in doing so, we're going to optimize penile health. Yeah. So to wrap up, one of the things that you mentioned was that it's rare that there is no medical solution for erectile dysfunction. And, and that's something that I, that I, you know, press on this podcast that for almost everybody, there is a way to resolve this. Um, if you have a good relationship and you want to maintain uh, a sexual relationship with your partner, there are almost always solutions, but how common or how uncommon is it that a penile implant is not an option and the ability for medicine to help facilitate that erection is just limited. I would say two main scenarios here. I would say one, if someone is not fit for surgery because they can't undergo anesthesia. 
Now, some providers will actually do penile implant surgery under local anesthesia, like a regional block. And I could definitely do it under a spinal block. But for some folks, if they have a lot of medical concerns and a spinal block might not be the safest option either, or if they're on blood thinners and can't hold their blood thinners. But I would say there are some people who implant penile implants who don't go, who don't get as nervous about some of these other factors. So they might do it on Coumadin, which is, uh, prevents the blood from clotting or some of these other blood thinner antiplatelet medications. So it might depend on the surgeon. You know, I wouldn't do it on those medications. That would be a no-go. Um, but doesn't necessarily mean no one's going to do it. And, and outcomes seem to be decent, decent for those patients. And then, you know, the other thing you got to think about cost And I feel very fortunate in the state of Iowa that a lot of the patients who come to see me have commercial insurance that covers the penile implant. And that's where if you compare penile injection therapy, which for Trimix could be $150 every month, then getting a penile implant actually might save that person money over the long term, depending on what their deductible is, what their coinsurance is, how much they've met. So it really depends on their insurance plan and um, and how kind of they're using some of that deductible money leading up until surgery. We, cer- we certainly have a lot of guys coming in at the end of the year, they've met their deductible and they want to get their penile implant. So it depends on insurance coverage. And it depends on, you know, some state insurances uh, like Medicaid might cover the penile implant. In the state of Iowa, they don't. So I would say that is another barrier is if the insurance doesn't cover it, is getting a reasonable cash rate that doesn't necessarily bankrupt patients. But in general, you have to be safe enough for a surgical operation and uh, you have to consider the cost. Okay. So you're saying it's, it's rare that uh, there are medical reasons per se that a person cannot do this. A person has to be in good enough health to undergo a surgery. And obviously there are financial considerations that go into this. Hopefully um, you know, people's insurance does cover um, this type of procedure. I, I believe that it is important to overall health uh, both uh, physically, but also uh, mentally and in terms of relationships. Exactly. And as you alluded to, you know, most of the guys who come in who end up getting a penile implant, they have heart disease and they have diabetes. So just because that's the, the number one and number two cause of erectile dysfunction. So if they're not responding to the pills, they probably have one or both of those factors. So, it, you know, even if someone's had a prior heart attack, as long as they're currently optimized and doing well and are okay for anesthesia, that would not be a reason not to do a penile implant. Excellent. Dr. Perlman, thank you very much. This has been an excellent overview of the medical treatments that are currently available. As you mentioned, there are a number of, I wouldn't call them quite experimental, but they are you know, more research-based, including you know, PRP and shockwave topics that we certainly will cover. But uh, in terms of what is commercially available uh, to patients under recommendation. Um, I think this has been an excellent overview of how treatment can progress. And of course, I will just re-emphasize to our listeners, this, this progression that we spoke about is not the way treatment has to go for you. So depending on each patient's situation, what's going on in their, in their uh, medical situation, in their relationships, uh, in, their, in their psychological lives, will determine what the best treatment is for them and any patient can collaborate with their provider to figure out how to best proceed forward. Thank you very much again, Dr. Palmer. We look forward to hosting you again for another episode soon. Good to be here. Thanks for listening to the Erectile Dysfunction Radio Podcast. For more information on today's topic and understanding how the mind impacts erectile dysfunction, 
please visit ErectionIQ.com. That's ErectionIQ.com.